0: You know, for the last three weeks, as, as Brian Bojo was saying, for the last three weeks, we've been in the book of Ruth. And uh, this morning, we're looking at Ruth chapter 4. Now, before we look at Ruth chapter 4, just a brief recap. You remember from the times we've been reading over the last few weeks that Ruth was actually the, the daughter-in-law of a woman named Naomi. And Naomi and her husband had left Israel to go to Moab because Israel was in a time of drought. And so they, were, they, they reestablished their lives in Moab for a little over a decade. And in that time period, their sons got married to Moabite women. And uh, then in the course of time, Naomi's husband and both of their sons died. And now Naomi has to return to Israel and she's a widow, and she's destitute, and she encourages both of her daughter-in-laws to go back to their parents, which was this, the standard operating procedure in that day. Uh, if you were widowed, and, uh, and you were still of a marriageable age, you would often go back to your parents, and then hopefully you find a new husband. But um, one of her daughter-in-laws goes back, but Ruth says, no, I am committed to you. I'm committed to you, I'm committed to your people, and I'm committed to your God. And I'm going to be with you through thick or thin, and... Most likely it was going to be more thin than thick because of the difficulties of now two widows going back to Israel in a rather destitute situation. And they return in the second chapter and we saw that, that uh, when her friends saw her, after over a decade, Naomi's friends, they could hardly recognize her. And Naomi said, don't, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which is mourning or bitterness because my life is bitter. And then we saw in chapter 3, where in the, in the due course of time, as a relationship had been developed on a superficial level with this gentleman named Boaz, because Ruth went out and gleaned in his fields, that Naomi said, this is one of our near relatives, what they would call a kinsman redeemer. And, and uh, you need, Naomi, in chapter 3, you need, Naomi says to Ruth, you need to go to him because as our redeemer... He ought to be responsible to to marry you, and to, to take care of us. And so she, in kind of an unwise uh, recommendation from her mother-in-law, goes and uh, and gets all dressed up. And really, what what it, in essence it is is she goes and and uh, sleeps down at his feet. And then when he is startled, there's actually a, in, a, in the cultural way, it's a proposal of marriage happening there. She's basically saying you are our kinsman redeemer, you need to marry me to take care of us. And Boaz's response is, you know, I hear what you're saying, but uh, but we have to follow protocol here. And uh, there's actually a kinsman redeemer who is closer to you than I am. So we're going to need to check things out with him and find out how things work out as far as his opinion. So that's where we find ourselves in chapter 4. And so we, we go into chapter 4, and it begins... It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. Now, what you're going to read here in these verses at the beginning is this is really Middle Eastern Israeli jurisprudence happening. This is the legal process. All the legal activity happened at the gate. And so what he does is it says, behold, the Redeemer for whom Boaz had spoken came by and Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now, when you said that to somebody at the gate, it wasn't just, hey, let's hang out together. Uh, I've got an agenda and we need to talk about this. And then he turned aside and sat down and said, he said to the Redeemer, um, Naomi, who has come back from the, the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here. You see, he had, he had impounded a jury in a very real sense. He had gotten witnesses to sit down together with them. And and he said, now I want you to encourage you to buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of of my people. But if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And then I come after you. So you see, really, what's happening here is, is a legal process where Boaz is saying, you are the one who's first responsible. Will you buy this property and do it in front of the witnesses here, which would make it a fully binding contract? And the man said, sure, I'm going to redeem it. Uh, and then in verse 5, Boaz said, Now you have to understand that the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And again, this was standard. You would, uh, a redeemer would buy land uh, from a person uh, if, if they were in a destitute situation, and the Redeemer would buy the land from them so that they would then be able to sustain their relative. And then they would sell it back to them as soon as they possibly could. And if if there was a widow in the family and there was a near relative, that, that relative was responsible to actually marry her and hopefully to have a son by that name to continue the family name. This was the standard cultural practice. And so this is what... Boaz presents before the near relative. And then the Redeemer said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, it may sound like he's just bugging off. I don't want to have the hassle of Ruth and Naomi, but but this was actually quite a financial burden that was being placed. Buy this land and put money into this and then take care of the land. Then also marry Ruth And that means taking care of Ruth and any children that may come from her, and then also take care of Naomi. So there's sort of the double burden of taking care of the family members, but also taking care of the land itself. And he said, listen, I just don't think I can handle that. If you want to do it, feel free to go ahead. And um, so in the next slide, we find Boaz turning to the elders and all the people and saying, you are witnesses this day that I have bought... From the hand of Naomi, all that belong to Elimelech, and all that belong to Chilion and Malone, that's the sons of Elimelech. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife. And so the actual process has taken place, and there's a, there's a formal activity that I didn't have us print up to read here that they go through to make sure the contract is is verified by all the people. And then what happens is the witnesses then bless Boaz and say, may the Lord bless you and may he prosper you and may he prosper the family and have a wonderful blessing that they give them. And then farther down the passage, it says, Boaz then took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer And may his name be renowned in Israel. And what you see going on here is the fact that Naomi now, who was a destitute widow, not only has her daughter-in-law, but now her daughter-in-law is married. They have a son, and the son would grow up and be responsible to continue to care for the family. So in a very real sense, what the women are saying is, God has blessed you, Naomi, to take care of you. And she, they also bless Ruth, and, and, they, and they bless the child, and they, and they name the child Obed. Now, the interesting fact is then, they named the son Obed, and then it, it goes on saying at the end of the chapter, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then it goes on and says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And that's the end of the chapter. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive into reflecting on what this has to say to us. Father in heaven, even as we read and we see all these activities happening in the Middle Eastern cultural aspects of the day, help us to see that you have given us this word for us to encourage us in our understanding of you and how we're called to live today in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin to reflect on this, um, I was thinking about this, and interestingly enough, what came into my mind this week as I was reflecting on the story of Ruth is uh, different musicals. I know that sounds strange, but you know, sometimes you're thinking of one thing and it brings up other things. Now, there's at least of all the musicals over the last 25 years, and there's been a lot of them and a lot of good musicals over the last 25 years. Two of them probably would stand out in your minds as the most popular musicals over the last 25 years. I'll let you ponder that for a second. Think about what you would classify into those categories. And I'm going to tell you what the statistics say. And, of course, I agree with the statistics as well. Uh, it's, it's these two, Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis. Now, you might not agree with that, but the fact is, is Phantom of the Opera is the longest-running show in Broadway history, and Les Mis has over 7 million people who've seen it in 46 different countries and has won 76 national, international awards. Both of them are really amazing musicals with phenomenal performances uh, requiring great range and capacity and singing. Uh, The stories are deeply full of drama and pathos. Interestingly enough, though, uh, when I went to see The Phantom of the Opera, even though I was blown away by the music and and, and, um, and, and the performances, it was a very dark show. It's very foreboding. And after the show was over, even though I was overwhelmed by the beauty and the music and the performances, I was walking away saying, but the, the theme of the show, what's going on here? You know, it ends at a grave site, and there's a, you know, that you just kind of end in this sort of darkness and confusion of, of the meaning that they're trying to pre- present, if there's any meaning at all. Whereas, if you go to see Les Mis, even though there's great drama, there's deep sadness in the story, the story ends with a sense of redemption with a real sense of hope. And you know, there's a lot of shows that are excellent shows and movies that end with uncertainty and questions and sadness, where there's no sense of closure, reflecting on the brokenness of this world. But generally, and again, you might disagree. We may have some English majors out there that would push back on this hard or whatever. But but generally, we like stories where the endings are tied together and things things work out. Where there's sort of a, a, you know like at the end of Ruth here things all come together. We almost feel like at the end of Ruth it, it should the last verse should say they lived happily ever after, you know it's it's a happy ending. Well, the book does end with a happy ending. Interestingly enough, though, Ruth points beyond its happy ending to what I would call a happier ending. And then if you push step back and look at the broader scope of Scripture. That happier ending actually points to what we would call could call the happiest ending, so this morning we we 're going to see a happy ending which leads us to a happier ending, which then leads us to the happiest ending so let 's let 's get into this first, the happy ending, okay, as I was saying, in chapter three ends, and Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi are left in this challenging position. If you were here last week, you heard BP explain the fact that there's a lot of stuff going on there that's really questionable, that there, there's some things happening there that put Ruth and Naomi and even Boaz in a pretty dark light, in an uncertain light. And yet, at the end of the book, Boaz has promised Ruth that he would either take care of her or make sure that their nearest relative would take care of her. Now again, just to reiterate, what is a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer is the male relative responsible to act, on behalf of a relative, in trouble, or in danger, or in need. And now what we see in chapter 4, just to outline the story as we just read it, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the legal process is taking place to resolve the problem. And you saw that, that Boaz goes to the nearest relative, talks about that. Nearest relative turns down the option. Boaz says, I'm going to marry Ruth. And then Ruth and Naomi and any children of the marriage, I'm going to take care of them. And so that's verses one through six, kind of the legal process. Verses seven through twelve, we saw the marriage commitment take place, and as that happens, the, the witnesses bless them, and pray God's blessing upon them. And then verses thirteen through seventeen, we have the marriage and the birth of uh, marriage of the of, of Boaz and Ruth, and then the birth of Obed, and the blessing that's placed upon Naomi. And it is a happy ending. And as we hear the happy ending and see that, we smile and say, isn't God good? Isn't it great how everything worked out for them? And indeed, it's true. But as I was saying, this leads us from the happy ending to what we would call the happier ending. The happier ending is to see that Obed, who was the son of Ruth and Boaz, is going to grow up, and he's going to be married, and he's going to have a son whose name is Jesse. And then Jesse's going to grow up, and he's going to get married, and he's going to have a number of sons. And the youngest of those sons is this kid named David, who then is taken by God out of being a shepherd and is made the king of Israel. But that's not the end of the happier ending, because the happier ending has, there's a promise that's given to David, when David becomes king and he's praying to God, God gives a promise to him through the prophet Nathan, which goes like this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And you can see I've underlined the word forever because God is emphatic here. He's saying, I'm going to establish your your throne and I'm going to make it an everlasting throne. It's going to be forever. Now there's a little problem here. David's sons after him had issues. After Solomon, then there was the breakup of Israel and then there were some good, some bad But then finally in 586 BC, 432 BC and 586 BC, Israel and Judah were taken away and the kingdom was taken away and there was no longer a king in Israel. Now, how can God promise a throne for David that would last forever if the the kingdom is destroyed? Well, you know the story of Christmas and you know that when Mary is confronted by an angel in Bethlehem hundreds of years later. Mary, who is a relative of David, who is is engaged to Joseph, who is a relative of David. And the angel said to her, "'Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David.'" There's the throne, there's the kingship, and he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so we see that the the real promise that's given to to Boaz and to Ruth in the completion of their, their marriage and having their son is then established in David and then is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate kinsman redeemer. He was born and he was established as God's ruler over the, over the, uh, over the throne of David. And then he, as the, our kinsman redeemer, sacrificed himself in our brokenness, that we would be reestablished in a relationship with God. So the, the happy story of Ruth and Naomi points us to the happier ending of Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer. Now, the conclusion that we can draw from this is amazing, especially this week before Thanksgiving. God was faithful to, to Boaz and to Naomi and to Ruth, despite their failures, the things that we saw last week, God is faithful to them. And in the same way, God is faithful to us, despite our failures, despite our sins. He is our kinsman redeemer who came alongside of us when we were in destitute condition, when we were broken. And by his sacrifice, we are healed. So Paul can say in Titus, he saved us. Why? not because of works that we have done in our own righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the happier ending. And if we can just pause for a second, we're going to scatter this next week all over the, the, the region, perhaps all over the country to celebrate Thanksgiving with family and friends. May I encourage you as you have thanksgiving together, that you, as you think of the list of things that you are thankful for in your life, that you can stop and say, of all things, Lord, I am most thankful for Jesus, my kinsman redeemer, who, while I was broken and in a destitute condition, came and sacrificed himself for me so that not on the basis of my righteousness, but on the basis of his sacrifice and love, He saved me. What a fantastic thing to be thankful to God for. So that's a conclusion I think that we can all draw in not just the happy ending, but the happier ending. Now, there's a conclusion that we shouldn't draw. What do you mean by that, Bob? Well, this last week I I was at the YMCA on the elliptical, and I was watching some TV while I was in the elliptical, and as I was skipping through some channels, I came across... One of the Christian channels. Now, I want to be gracious because I believe that this preacher I came across on this channel was being completely sincere. But in essence, the message he gave to the people watching was this: We all made Jesus. Come to Jesus, and every problem you have is going to be resolved. Come to Jesus, and that's going to be the the the, the conclusion of the issue. And without saying it, he. Communicated if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be taken care of, and you're going to have better roses. Have you heard that before? Kind of the we'll give the Jesus pitch, and the, the, the the thing we're going to put out in front of people is the fact that Jesus is going to solve your problems. You know, there's a there's a tool that's been used for years to talk about the importance of coming to Christ, and I love. The people who use this tool. I have close friends who are, have been involved over the years and I love their ministry with, called Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. And I really appreciate and have good friends, close friends, who've come to Christ even through the use of the four spiritual laws. And perhaps you've seen that. And again, I don't question the sincerity and the honesty of people in using that but the first law of the four spiritual laws can really be distorted it goes god loves you and offers you a wonderful plan for your life and then the verse that's tied to it is john chapter 10 verse 10 which talks about the fact that if you come to jesus you'll experience abundant life now i do believe that god loves us and has and offers us a wonderful plan for our lives And it is abundant life. But generally, if you just take those words out of context and you hear someone say that God offers you a wonderful plan for your life, doesn't that almost sound like a pitch for a bed of roses? And then you hear this idea of, of having an abundant life and you think, wow, if I come to Jesus, I'll have an abundant life. Now, there's abundance and then there's abundance. There's abundance where we think it's a bed of roses and then abundance of learning and growing and maturing in our walk with Christ in the midst of a broken and and, and hurting world. Two weeks ago, we looked at this. We saw this picture, and I won't get into all the details of it, except to say that creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration outline God's understanding of history as we see it in the scriptures. And we know that we in our day and age now have, are still living in a world which has committed rebellion against the living God. And yet we've experienced a great redemption seeing Jesus come and die in order to redeem those who are his with the expectation that the day is coming of restoration. When Jesus returns and all things will be set right. Truly what we anticipate in the marriage of Ruth to Naomi, won't be completely fulfilled until the restoration. The idea of God offering us a wonderful plan for our life won't be truly completely fulfilled until the restoration. Until that time, we live in this time of rebellion and redemption, working themselves out as we labor for the kingdom of God and seek and desire to bring a taste of his restoration to our culture, to our world. But this is the tension that we're living in today. And this is the tension that we actually see in the book of Ruth. Which brings me yet to uh, another musical. This has been the week week of musicals. But as I've been thinking about the story of Ruth, a musical has come to my mind that actually comes from the, the show that is the longest running musical in the history of musical theater. Now, you think to yourself, you just said Phantom of the Opera is the longest-running musical. I said it's the longest-running Broadway musical. But there's musicals off-Broadway, and there's musicals that happen all around the country, touring groups and things. And there's a different musical that has been the longest-running musical in the history of musical theater in New York, only to be briefly interrupted by 9-11. But it goes on today. Does anybody in here have a guess of what that is? Lion King, sorry. Wicked, those are all great. Those are all good. Cats, good idea, good guess, but that's not it. You may not have even heard of this musical before. It's called, yes, The Fantastics. And The Fantastics is a a simple story, but it's a beautiful story in Scene one, you have two fathers who are trying to work things out to get their, one father has a son, one father has a daughter, they're neighbors, and the two fathers are trying to get things worked out so that their their daughter and their son would fall in love with each other and get married. And so the whole first act is about them working these things through together. And the ends, the first act ends with them meeting one another and falling in love with one another. And the end of the first act, they're in love with one another and they're going to get married. Now, the first time I went to see the Fantastics, I said to myself at the end of the first act, I'm, you know, we're in intermission, and I'm, I'm saying to myself, where's it going to go from here? You know, two people, tension, they fall in love with one another, they get married. You know, that's the end of the happy story, the happy ending. Then the second act begins with a song which goes, this plum's too ripe. And the message of that song is, this isn't the way life really is. You see, in a very real sense, the Fantastics give us a better theology than is often heard or thought about among evangelicals. We often end our discussions about Jesus like the end of the first act of the Fantastics. But just like the picture that we saw a few moments ago, the fact that we live in this tension between the here but the not yet, we're expecting and desiring the restoration, but we're still living in the brokenness. So the Fantastics acknowledges the fact that this is a broken world and there's difficulties that we have to go through. And the whole second act shows the boy and the girl walking away from each other and walking into a world That looks like it's going to be delightful, but it burns. At the end of the story, they come back together, sadder but wiser. And El Gallo, the narrator of the story, sings the famous song, Try to Remember. And he sings that last verse. He says, Deep in December, it's nice to remember, although you know the snow will follow. Deep in December, it's nice to remember. Without a hurt, the heart is hollow. The message of that is we've got to live in a broken world and find hope in the midst of that brokenness. And that is, my friends, the happiest ending. That's the happiest ending. And it's embedded in this strange last couple of verses in the in Ruth 4. This genealogy. These are the generations of Perez. None of us have ever heard of Perez, but Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amimadab, Amimadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. And you say to me, this is weird, Bob. I mean, besides being a bunch of names of things I'd never want to name my kid. What's what's the purpose of this at the end of the book of Ruth? Great Australian biblical scholar, Leon Morris, made this comment. He said, here it comes, God's hand is over all history. He works out his purpose, generation after generation. Limited as we are to one lifetime, each of us sees so little of what happened." A genealogy is a striking way of bringing before us the continuity of God's purpose through the ages. The process of history is not haphazard. There is a purpose in it all. You see, we really can't understand the book of Ruth unless we read the book of Revelation. Because in the book of Revelation, it ends in chapter 22, and in verse 22, verse 10... What the angel of the Lord is saying to John is really the message of Ruth. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, he says, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right. And let the holy still be holy. What's that verse saying? We're living in the here but not yet. Until Jesus comes back, People are going to live their lives, just like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. What the verse is saying is, let the righteous live a righteous life. Let the holy live a holy life. And those who have not sought the living God are going to be living out the lives that they live. However, in verse 12, Jesus says, behold, I am coming. And I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. The end of the chapter of chapter 22, Jesus is reiterating, while people are living just like the days of Noah, doing their thing, some righteous, some unrighteous, I am returning. I'm returning with judgment in my hand. How are we to respond to Jesus' statement of his return? The very end of the book Says, and it's kind of hard to see, it's cut off there at the bottom. The Spirit and the bride, these are the last verses. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, Jesus. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. John ends, come Lord Jesus. This is the end of the book of Ruth. People living the lives that they're living, some righteous, some unrighteous, but the happiest ending is the fact that Jesus is going to return and the offer is available to be reconciled to God and then to live for him until his return. And the cry of our hearts until that time is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Jesus is working his purpose out in history. We're to continue to be faithful and to cry for his coming. He's going to come in his time. He'll make all things new. But until that time, we're to pray, thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And to keep on doing what we're called to do where he's planted us. Last time my wife and I saw Judy was late at night. We heard the doorbell ring. We opened the door and Judy was crumbled at our doorstep, holding on to her newborn infant child and her son, her other son, was standing behind her, weeping uncontrollably. We brought her into the house and we began to hear her story. Judy was a basketball player in college, a star player of her college team, and it was there where she met Dave. Dave had been a division one recruit in a very well-known college to play football, but he got caught up in drugs and because of that, he was kicked off the team and kicked out of the school. After that, he came to a profession of faith in Christ and transferred to the school where he met Judy. They met, they fell in love, and they got married. And after they graduated, they moved to Atlanta and they were involved in our church. How did Judy come to this point of being crushed at our doorstep? Earlier that evening, she had learned... Through a series of circumstances that she could never control, that her husband had not only reengaged and gotten involved in drugs again, but he was also significantly involved in dealing drugs, and he also was significantly involved in an affair with a woman through with whom he sold the drugs. The story was a sad ending. They ended in divorce. And Judy was now a single parent, and she had to figure out a way to survive. She was recruited to be the head women's basketball coach in a college in the upper Midwest. And she moved away, and we never heard from her again. Until this last Wednesday. This so last Wednesday, my wife was finishing a project, and after she finished the project, she was cleaning up, and she turned on the TV, and she had taped a series of shows called Johnny and Friends off a cable. Maybe some of you have seen that. It's Johnny Erickson Tada. Some of you have heard her name. She's a Christian who's very involved in different ministries. And uh, on her show, she was showing a tape of a team that had gone to Uganda to minister to orphans and to, to people in Uganda. And one of the people on this team was coaching, as a woman, was coaching basketball players, young men playing basketball in Uganda. And we looked and we looked and we suddenly realized that's Judy. 28 years later, being taped on a missions team in Uganda, coaching basketball to these Ugandan young men. Is life as a Christian going to be a bed of roses? No, but God calls his people to faithfulness and to work towards the restoration of all things, day by day, week by week, where God has planted us. And the duties of this world face the difficulties and the burdens of sin, the brokenness. But in the redemption that Jesus brings, turn and learn to give redemptive hope to the broken world. And that's what God's called us to do, friends. This next week where he's placed you, if you're a follower of Jesus, as you cry out, come Lord Jesus, in the kindness of his redemption, like he kindly redeemed Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, he's redeemed us to live for him and to see that he is going to pull all things together. And indeed, even as we sung earlier, he will make all things well in his time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Thank you for the happy ending. Lord, thank you for the happier ending of Jesus coming as our redeemer, our kinsman redeemer. And even the happiest ending, that he will come back and make all things new. But until that time, he calls us to continue to be faithful, to continue to be righteous, to seek his holiness, and to cry out, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name.